Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet-Karnak, greeting you on Christmas Day on behalf of myself, Christiana Figueres, and Paul Dickinson. Thanks for being here. So this is our Christmas Day episode, and warm season's greetings to all of our listeners, whether you're celebrating or whether you're not. 2020 has certainly been a year marred by the challenges of public health, lockdowns and economic problems, which we are still enduring in many parts of the world. But we've also seen progress. And this podcast is also about keeping our eye on facing extraordinarily difficult things with the determination that we can use all of our emotions, our anger and our optimism to make radical change. Over the year, we've witnessed extraordinary displays of global solidarity, love and bonds of community. From citizens to politicians, we've deepened our understanding that addressing the climate crisis is linked to tackling our economic woes, building a transformed, more equal and more secure and better future for all of humanity. Earlier this week, Christiana and Paul talked to three very special guests who shared their reasons for staying stubbornly optimistic. Geologist Professor Chris Jackson, ocean scientist and physicist Dr Helen Sersky, and environmental scientist Dr Tara Shine. They are delivering this year's Royal Institution Christmas Lectures with a special focus on climate change. The Royal Institution Lectures have taken place every Christmas since 1825, And this year's lectures are given by these three expert and extraordinary scientists who will present a unique user's guide to planet Earth. The lectures will be run over three days, the 28th, 29th and 30th of December on the Royal Institution website and on the BBC for those in the UK to watch. Check the show notes for more details. So from our family of stubborn optimists to yours, we wish you peace and good health and look forward to returning in 2021 with season three. So here's Christiana and Paul talking to Chris Jackson, Hella Sersky, and Tara Shah. Hope you enjoy. Helen, Chris, and Tara, how delightful to have all three of you on Outrage and Optimism. You have just told us before we started recording that this is the first time that the Royal Institution has three lecturers for their Christmas lectures. It also is the first time that we have three guests on Outrage and Optimism. So we're, we're definitely pushing the boundaries here and delighted <laughs> to push the boundaries with, with the three of you. Thank you so much. And it's so exciting for us actually to have you on just a few days before the release of your uh, Christmas lectures, just to give people what I would say is um, a little taste, a little foretaste of what is to come in the Christmas lectures. Paul, could I turn over to you to start our conversation? Yes, please, yes, please, yes, please. I'm very excited because I used to be taken to the Royal Institution by my father when I was a kid and (laughs) always loved going particularly. Um, Okay, so you're going to talk about a user guide to planet Earth, and I think that just couldn't be a a better theme. Um, I think it was Buckminster Fuller actually wrote a little book called An Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth in 1969. Um, okay, so here's the question. I'm terrible with manuals, all right? Like a lot Did of people. Did that manual <laughs> say anything about oceans? Did it say anything about climate change? Did it say anything uh, you know, about it, all it of that? It was probably it was probably better than you think. 
Okay. okay. <laughs> he was probably better than you think. Buckminster Fuller was we'll as mad as a, we'll as, a, as a bag of frogs, but 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 not completely clueless. Um, uh, but here's my question. I'm bad with manuals. Um, many of us are. Which section should we go to first? Oh, that's you... not fair. Come ah, on. We are entirely okay. biased in this debate and we know Clean what... Up, Helen, you've you're very, very diplomatically gone first. So tell us why your section's the more important one. Well, we've, we've normally... So Chris's lecture will go first. So normally Chris goes first in this explanation. So I think we should start with Chris because it, it oh. they do go in that order. There is a kind of logic to it. Yeah. So... Um, I guess a lot of our thinking about climate change is very much based in the now and the future, right? So what's going on now and what the climate's going to look like in the future? But obviously the planet's been around for a long time and the climate has accordingly changed during that long time. So in my lecture, I'm going to be providing that sort of like longer term baseline for what we have experienced in human history and what we might anticipate happening in the future. So using the geological record, so the rock record and the fossil record to work out how climate has changed through time. And then also to look at how biodiversity has changed as a function of those changes in climate, because that's the thing we as humans are really concerned about is whether we're going to live or die and what might push the extremes of life on Earth. So that's that's the kind of the, the, the core of my lecture is providing the foundation then for what Helen and Tara then go on to talk about in their lectures. So it's not the best one. But there's the thing. <laughs> there's the thing, Chris. I mean, you know, you've said it yourself. The climate's always been changing. I mean, isn't this whole thing completely overblown? I mean, as you said a minute ago, the climate's always been changing. Why would we be worried now when it's always been changing? I mean, why? Why? Have you noticed how Paul wants to be fired from this podcast? Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm well trained in this conversation slightly. Are you? Okay, let's see your training. I, I guess we as species weren't around when some of those climate extremes occurred on Earth. So to actually say it's been hot, it's been cold in the past is kind of a bit daft really because it's about the limits to our, our life, you know, and us as a species, not to other things that have lived. The other thing that is of kind of great concern is the rate of change. It's the pace of change, the pace of carbon dioxide addition to the atmosphere and, and accordingly the, the, the rising global temperatures. So it, there's only one time in Earth's history when the rate of CO2 addition to the atmosphere was as rapid as it is now. And that was when the Chicxulub impact crater was formed off Mexico about 65 million years ago. And that was an incredibly catastrophic event. Is that right? when we lost the dinosaurs or...? That's where, well, that's when we lost the flightless dinosaurs, yeah. So the ones that couldn't, like, fly. So <laughs> I think that's my response to that question is, I think it's a false equivalence to kind of, you know, when people ask that question. But that's that's what my lecture's about. No, no, to be honest, Chris, I, I mean, I've spent 20 years working on climate change. I've got a book about from, from a scientist a while ago, and I only managed to get halfway through it because every 10 pages was about the next 50 million years and then the next 10 pages <laughs> about the next 100 million years and after about two weeks of this being by the side of my bed I kind of but I mean that's the point right you study insane lengths of time right yeah that's what we're trying to do is to look at rates of change and and types of change and how we and, and look at those in a different kind of temporal lens um so you know where people think 10,000 years ago is a long time we think it's kind of you know, yesterday. And in fact, the rock record of what's changed in the last 10,000 years is actually quite hard in some ways for geologists to read. It's actually sometimes easier to look at these longer term changes in what we call deep time. So tens to billions of tens of millions to hundreds of millions of years ago, to even billions of years ago. So Neil Armstrong told us that rocks remember. To that, I would add, and rocks talk. Um, so um, Chris, uh, can you catapult yourself to, I don't know, 10,000 years from now, 
And um, what would the difference be between those rocks that today are remembering the past and those rocks that we'll be speaking about today, but oh 10,000 years from now? What's the <laughs> difference in what they're going to say? Chris has got a pet rock. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I have got... I- I've got plenty of pet rocks. They're all competing for my affections downstairs on the <laughs> shelf. Um, I think one thing we'll see in the rock record in, you know, that records our time on Earth, maybe an increased amount of plastics because you know, they, they're not going to degrade like many biodegradable objects. And so therefore in the deep sea record, especially where we have low energy conditions and not a lot of colonization of the seabed by animals, right? To break things down. There's not a lot living down there um, in certain patches. Um, we're going to have a better chance of preserving layers which are rich in things like plastics. We also may have layers which are rich in radionuclides, so um, things which are recording um, nuclear weapons testing. And so we'll have this body of human-generated materials which we've never had in the geological past, and therefore there may be a discrete marker in the rock record. And And like what I'm interested in is whether it's literally going to be a layer that all of human history is going to be in a bed, we call it in geological terms, which is like this thick, 10 centimetres thick, or whether it's going to be a a succession of rock, you know, like we could go up to a cliff face and see, you know, changes in, you know, different human activities recorded in the rock layers that's that's kind of an open question we've got to do something i don't i don't want to be in the, the, the period that's remembered for like atomic uh, atomic bombs and plastic it just doesn't work very well but anyway mm, it's not a great look is it but <laughs> no <know>. it's not <laughs> Sorry, have I brought the mood down already? <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, I think I think you're warning us, right? Warning us uh, that uh, the rocks are already talking about how stupid we humans have been. Mm-hmm. Will they forever talk about how stupid, or will they say, "Okay, that was a fleeting moment in which humans were as stupid as this"? Um, and then they actually woke up and regenerated the planet. That is the big question, right? That uh, yeah. that we're actually and and we know what we ought to be doing now. So Helen, that brings us to you actually, because you have spoken quite a bit about um, the relationship between oceans, uh, the behavior of oceans, and the behavior of humans. And you have spoken uh, eloquently about how the behavior of oceans has been affecting the behavior of humans. According to Chris, that has actually now reversed. It's the behavior of humans that are determining the behavior of oceans. Is that your conclusion? Well, so actually I'd step back a bit from that. I have got a right bee in my bonnet about the oceans, which is probably a separate topic. But um, the um, so the thing, one of the things that strikes me, so my uh, my lecture is about the engines because the engines are the heart of the of the planetary. The oceans are the heart of the planetary engine, and so the thing that's important is that if you want to understand how the planet works, you need to understand how the ocean works. And one of the things that sort of is very noticeable to me because no one really thinks about the ocean, right? Humans, they look across the top of it, they see waves, they sort of assume there's nothing underneath, and which is very arrogant because there's, that's what's keeping us all going. And um, so the thing that I think is that there needs to be a kind of shift in perspective and you have to understand how the engine works before you can, you've got any kind of framework for doing something about it. And the thing is that with the oceans, it was really interesting putting this lecture together because really it's such basic ocean science. And yet 
almost like the people, you know, the 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 camera crews and the people, the directors in the lecture theatre, were like, oh, I didn't know that. And it's basically the equivalent of telling someone that humans have a skeleton. And so there's this really <laughs> fundamental framework about the ocean we just don't have. So so my lecture is all about this 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 blue spherical engine that runs planet Earth. And often when we think about the oceans, you know, what we hear about, as Chris said, is the plastics and the overfishing. And, you know, it's not that there's not, you know, these are big problems. But if you look at what the ocean does on a planetary scale, this is our thermostat, basically. This is the battery. This is where the energy is. Um, this is what stops us getting super hot and super cold every time we spin around to face away from the sun and come back again um how does it do that well it's well it, water is a really good place for storing energy it's basically like a battery so so when when the sun shines on the ocean the ocean warms up a little bit because it takes a lot of energy to heat up the ocean by very much and then but it, that energy can be released later so it acts as this buffer so it doesn't ever get super hot because if there's extra heat energy it goes into the ocean it doesn't ever get super cold because if there ah. you know if there isn't enough if it's a really cold day then the ocean gives some energy back and heats things up and so it's this kind of buffer in the middle um, and it's doing the same with carbon uh, it's acting as a buffer uh, in the carbon buffers are a complicated thing but anyway it's, act it's acting as a reservoir of carbon absorbing absorbing a lot of the uh, of the carbon but it holds the, this enormous amount of carbon you know 60 times as much carbon in the ocean as there is in the atmosphere and so 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 I, I I can talk about the ocean for hours. Um, I am quite proud. I've almost managed to have a whole lecture without mentioning the fish because the ocean is not just where the fish live. It has this really important engine function for the fish Earth. live somewhere else. Or what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're part of the engine. But that, that's, I mean, you know, the fish that are in the ocean, I don't mind fish. They're very nice. I gen tend to think they should stay in the ocean. I don't eat them. But anyway, um, but, but they are part, they are a part, a living part of this engine, but they're only part of it. So biology yeah. is important, mm. but it's a part of the engine. And the physical nature of the engine affects the biology because, the you know, the currents and things carry the fish around, carrying the nutrients around, all of that. But the biology also affects the physical engine by de determining how the carbon moves around, for example. So, so, so it's like, you know, the fish are just like your kidneys. It's very nice. Everyone should have kidneys. This is a good thing. But there's more to a human than your kidneys and there's more to the ocean than its fish. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's kind of this shift in perspective. So so that's what my lecture is all about. It's so this, so this... Helen, take me one step farther. So um, with that analogy, I was going to say, is it the blood system? But you're saying it's the heart. It's what pumps. It's the engine. The engine. Yeah. Well, like you, you can add on the circulatory system. I'll take that. But both of them together. <laughs> together. I would. Yeah. I, I would. Yeah. I would, Chris I would, is going to disagree. Uh oh. Well, no. I think. I think that you know, as, as a geologist, I guess there's things like plate tectonics and volcanology, and and the way that carbon dioxide is moved and consumed as the ocean helps transport carbon around. That's as important. So I. I guess in my mind as a geologist, as a land dweller looking to the sea, I do see it as a really important mechanism by transporting energy, but also bits of the car, you know, really important role in the carbon cycle. So circulation system does sound, I don't know, it just, I don't know, it just feels more correct to me, Helen, but I don't know, maybe it's the Well, heart. but wait a second, circulation, a circulation system would not circulate anywhere if it didn't have the heart pumping it. Yeah, that's true. I asked a doctor once, what percentage of people die of a coronary arrest? And they said... Mm -hmm. A hundred percent of people. <laughs> yeah. of I was like, yeah, no, it's a very important organ. That's a very important. But organ. actually, so one of the points we make in the lectures, and we should let Tara get her or in here, is that the, the point is that no one, there's no right and wrong here. It's that what we have is three different perspectives, all looking at the same thing, and that actually the entire point of having three lecturers is that 
it's not, no one's having those arguments about whether physics is better than chemistry. I'm a physicist, obviously physics is better. That's not the point. The point is <laughs> that you need... Okay, we'll just let that one go just like We'll just let it go. No, she didn't say songs. that, actually. She didn't say that. Go ahead, Helen. But you need all of those perspectives. It's You're 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 looking at the same thing and, and sometimes you're looking at the same science, but it's the framework like that you use to look at it that t- takes you somewhere next. And that's why it's important that there's three of us because... Um, it's not that any one of these perspectives is the right perspective. It's that what humans need to do is kind of hold all of them in their head. All of these things are correct. And and it's not like there's one version of science. It's just that you have to hold these multiple ideas to understand this one thing because it's so complicated. And that's really totally. what we're saying at the beginning and the end. And now we should let Tara say what's in her lecture. Land, well, water, so, so air. air. And, not, and humans and humans. Um, so I, I, I'm thrilled that you just said that, Helen, because I just spent the whole afternoon talking about this, how we have to, you know, get away from our thinking in dichotomies. It's either this or that. It's actually both and also at the same time and hold all of these realities in equal standing and understand that the reality is that they are interconnected. That's the reality. We can't choose one over the other. However, We all belong to the human species. So I want to turn to Tara because, Tara, now you've heard Chris and Helen speak to this issue, let's say from a systemic point of view. But um, my sense is that you look at this from the individual point of view and how do we interact with that systemic um, complexity that is that we think is out there but actually is inside of us also. So, um, Tara. Are, are you going to give us a tiny little sense of what your lecture is? Yeah, no, I will happily give you a tiny little sense. And I think if we stick to the analogies we had a minute ago, we were talking about, you know, is the, is the ocean the heart? How does the circulatory system of the ocean link to the circulatory systems in volcanoes and lava, for example? Well, another part of that system is the respiratory system. Okay, and in all of this, we're not going to fight over who owns the brain or not. The whole idea is to try and bring you a holistic picture of what it is that the planet works and what the key systems are and how they interact. That's why there's three of us, as Helen was explaining. And so my job in the third lecture is to look at the atmosphere. Um, And if people have a hard time connecting with the ocean, they have an even harder time connecting with the atmosphere. So, yeah, you breathe air, but you don't think about it. The atmosphere is there. But how often do you think about that beyond clouds or maybe when you go in an aeroplane or something? So we we unpack the atmosphere. We look at it. We start from our own breath um, in lecture three and we follow that through into what does that mean in terms of what air is? What's it composed of? Um, And we try we come back around to carbon and carbon dioxide, which which Chris kicks off with and looks at quite a lot in his lecture in the carbon cycle. And they were like, well, what's what's happening with carbon? And, you know, I love this question. How can something as natural as the carbon dioxide we breathe out be also bad for us and a pollutant and, and be destabilizing our Earth? It's just a tiny little fraction of the atmosphere. And yet it's causing us all these problems. And so in my lecture, we unpack that and and look at how the levels of carbon dioxide are, 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 are rising. But, you know, Chris has also looked at that from geological time and, and right up to the to the present day. But then so then we have to ask, like, well, so what? What does it mean? Um, how much have we warmed uh, the planet by already? And how is that um, how is that warming experienced? Um, and how are those impacts uneven? How does that vary according to where you live? 
And and then, of course, this will be no shock to you, Christiana. I look at the fairness and unfairness of climate change mm. um, in terms of where do these emissions come from? Are the impacts evenly distributed around the earth? Um, and all of this to try and get around to, well, and, and so what on earth do we need to do with it? Because it is this point. We either are the, the, the race that is known for having left a layer of plastic in the rock record, or as you said, we, we are the, the, the human species that, that learned and that was enlightened and turned back from the brink and, and created a long future so that in 10,000 years we're still here and we're still laying down a geological record that we're proud of. And so when we, in this lecture, we're going to look at, yeah, what can we do about it? What power do we have as, as society, as individuals? And, and how do we look after this, this atmosphere that is, you know, such a tenuous thing, um, um, an intangible thing? How do we look after it better? So now here's the challenging question for all three of you. If I were a 10-year-old Paul Dickinson, who used to go to these lectures, <laughs> and I listened to the three of you, I would be deathly afraid. I would be terrified because, you know, here you are basically saying to me, you're in such bad shape. So what do you do uh, in these Christmas lectures that are basically meant for families? And, and we want the 10-year-olds and the 8-year-olds and the 14-year-olds uh, to be coming to these Christmas lectures. What, how, do, how do you put these messages in a context so that, A, they're understandable, although I am totally aware of the fact that kids nowadays are born with a completely privileged chip in their brain that we didn't have, so much, much quicker learners than we were. But yet, how do you put all of these concepts into um, a context that is A, understandable, B, manageable to digest emotionally for a child, and C, something that children walk out from going, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to contribute to this. How do you get to the exciting yes of a child? <laughs> any of you all of you I want an answer from all three of you yeah we thought about this so much Christiana because we in particular thought about the year that we're in and we yeah. thought about all the stuff that you know my kids Chris's kids the kids that any of us know have had to go through already in this year and one thing we were certain about was we were not going to add more doom and despair to their year right they've had enough and so whilst we we respect this audience and it's it's we our audience is sort of an 11 to 17 year old audience and then the you know and then families that watch this between Christmas and New Year we, we want to be honest with them about the facts and we want to be entertaining with the science. And that's a whole part of the Christmas lectures ever since Faraday started them in 1825 is that it's theatre, it's science through theatre. So that helps to kind of bring it to life and make it a little bit more lighthearted. But we, we have throughout this a great sense of what the solutions are. You spoke about the need to regenerate the planet. And we look at some of those themes around what our role is in, in regenerating the planet. And we also remind that there's a lot of things that we know about already. You know, this is something I say to young people all the time, Christiana, people like you have been working on this for 30, 40 years. I'm coming up there a little bit behind you, Paul, as well. There's a lot of us that have been laying the foundations of boring kinds of climate policy and technology development and all these kind of things that are ready now to be scaled up. And so we're not leaving all of this to the young people and the next generation with no work done. 
uh, we have a good lot of work to do. What we need to do is do more of it and do it now. And I think we want to get them excited about the potential that that holds for creating a better world and a better life for them. So it's not even just about stopping the plastic getting stuck in the geological record. It's about making a better future, a better, happier, fairer society for them to live in. And we ho- I hope we can in- get them excited about all of that. Chris, how do you do that? Or Helen, go ahead. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a great privilege of the Christmas lectures that you get to work with people who are very good at the demos and the theatre, as Tara said. But I think that a large part of this is there's a lot of wow in science, especially for kids at that age. They're hearing a lot of this for the first time, you know, not necessarily the the the, the horrid bits of climate change, but the how the engine works bits. And there's so much... Um, you are enabled if you have a framework where you understand what's going on. You know, so I I paddle uh, outrigger canoes with uh, Hawaiian communities who know the ocean very well. And there is a saying there that um, you can't protect what you don't understand and you won't protect it if you don't care. And, And I think the place we can really help is actually that first bit, is that if you understand, suddenly everything else makes sense. I think for, you know, for a lot of people in society now, it's all bad. Like, plastic is bad, this is bad, that's bad. And there's no context for it. It's like, well, what's the alternative? right? What actually is the fundamental problem? And so I think, I feel certainly with my lecture that I can talk about the amazing thing that the ocean is. And actually, that by itself is a lot of the framework that is needed because then all the other pieces, it's like having a Christmas tree and having baubles. If someone just throws Christmas tree baubles at you, you just got this pile of baubles, right? You don't know what to do with them, these Christmas decorations. But if someone gives you a Christmas tree, then you can hang them on the Christmas tree and go, oh, now I know where it goes, right? It goes here on the tree. And mm-hmm. I think the hardest thing for young people now is that everyone's just throwing baubles at them, but they're not baubles. They're really grotty, horrid bits of information, like everything's dying. <laughs> and they don't have anywhere to put it. There's nowhere to put that information. And it's yeah. really really well empowering put, well put. Yes. To, to be able to go, oh, this bit goes there. And now I can see the system. I know what to do about it. So actually, yeah. I think these lectures are about the wonder of the, you know, certainly... A conceptual mapping. Yes, exactly. We are drawing the map. And, and you can say, okay, now we can navigate our route across the map because we yeah. know where we are. And then we can yeah. decide where we're going. And I think that my be in the bonnet, and this is, you know, it's actually a thing that is part of the news cycle. And I'm sure you have seen this and plenty of others that everyone's like, well, what's the bad story? Tell us the story. And you're like, but there's this whole thing over here that you, unless you understand that, the story um, isn't really telling you the picture, but everyone wants the short story. And so there's all this context which is lost. So people, you know, you're sort of powerless. And and that's a it's it's the way the media works. But then the 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 great thing is that if you can provide that context, that is everything else then sits on top of it. And I think hmm. that's what we can do in these lectures. Yeah, I think I was just gonna say as well that the um going back to a question of how are we gonna let people leave the theatre virtually in this case with that sort of understanding. I think you touched on it briefly there, Helen, but the demos. I think one thing is this very visual bit of science and this very sort of um, practical bit of science. Kinesthetic learners, I'm one of these people when I was younger, I I can't understand anything. I was horrible at physics, I was horrible at math, things that were abstract to me. I needed them to be first posed in a physical framework really and then to add the science to understanding how that worked. And I think that's what demos do. I think the demo tread a line between theatre, drama, um, wow and being grounded in accurate science, right? That's the thing is the science needs to be accurate, but we need to make it not like grim and grizzly like science really often is in the lab, right? We need to we need to bring it out of that and make it and make it like appealing. So that people come away with a visual understanding, if not a deep understanding, they still at least have a visual understanding of how a process works that, you know, myself, Tara or Helen talk about. 
So Paul is chomping at the bit to get in here, but, um, and I know you're not allowed to speak about your demos. I know that. I got that. Let's not spill the beans. But can one of you define the word demos? When you speak about the demos being very helpful, what does, what do you mean by a demo? Can you just define the word? Basically something that is on fire. Yeah, <laughs> large explosions. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's demonstration. It's a demonstration of something. And I remember when I was about, you know, very young, uh, I saw a linear motor at the Royal Institution and I was like, whoa, you know, that's pure <laughs> magic. And, but the thing, uh, the thing about these, the way this works basically is that there's this, you've got a space, right? You've got this amazing round lecture theatre. If anyone hasn't had a look at the Royal Institution, look for a picture online. It is the most fabulous space because you're in the middle of this circular, almost, you know, semicircular space. You're down at the bottom, it's very steep. And basically you can do whatever you want that makes a scientific point. And that is the freedom. You can make things come down from the ceiling. You can make massive great things come in from the side. You can drop things, blow things up, set Explosions. things on fire. Uh, <laughs> you can colour things in. You can have people doing stuff. Well, not so much this year, but anything that demonstrates a scientific point. And I think that's one of the things, like, you know, we've all, well, I've certainly got one of the many bees in my bonnet about about science teaching, but I think it's... You have a this whole hive where, in your bonnet. Yeah, she does, I know, she very busy in there. Um, but, the, but the point is that there's this thing that science is sort of over here and it's in a little box and it's called science and it looks like this. And you probably... I hate lab coats. I hate lab coats so much. Nasty things. They can go away. But the point is there's this box and you need a lab coat and you need, you know, a, a special little badge that says scientist and, that's, and then what's in the box has a very specific form. And I think that's nonsense. I think you walk out into the world and you walk out into a toy box of science. And, and I think the thing that these lectures allow you to do is to take, to think of the most, because it's, as Chris said, if the science is correct, it doesn't matter whether you demonstrate it with, I don't know, you know, 10 hamsters or a clarinet, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter if it gets the point across. There's no hamsters or clarinets to just in case in anyone lecture. gets too excited <laughs> in oh, my lecture. On. I don't know about oh, no, the other two. Not no, there's not a clarinet. No hamsters. <laughs> okay, That's we're not, point, we're not right? going to spill any beans here. No bean not spilling. Not allowed to talk about their demos. Um, you know, there are hamsters playing clarinets. Well, that I, that I, that I want to see, although I'm, I'm suspecting a little bit of CGI there, but that's just... Or, or a cinema. clarinet playing with the hamsters. Yeah, it could work either way. <laughs> that's an image. You know, um, Darwin played the bassoon at Worms. That's true. Dar if you read Darwin's book, uh, he wrote a book on the science of worms and it describes him in his garden playing the bassoon to worms to see what they did. Oh, right, and you. I think he was very distressed to find they didn't do very much. He played quite, oh, quite a few <laughs> musical instruments because like, he didn't know, right? It was 1860-something. It kind of depends what you choose. You know, there are certain periods where, the, you know, the, the worms are, are much more uh, responsive. Yeah. Um, can I, it's, it's, a just, it's a crazy time, you know, because you're, like, you're trying to communicate with the children and then like millions of children are striking because they're so concerned about about these issues and one of the things i remember when i when i read uh, a book by james lovelock I, I i remember i finished it, i put it down and i kind of thought this is a call to arms uh to the scientific community and uh we we, we had thomas crowther on the podcast uh, uh, earlier this year and he's been vocal about the need for more multilateral engagement in the scientific community are you seeing more collaboration uh, uh, and and more more how can i say it more more profile more more kind of um activist scientists I might answer that from something I was doing uh, in the United Nations Climate Change Convention there the other week, which was working on the uh, structured expert dialogue, right? There's a big long name for you, but looking at uh, reviewing the, the long-term goals set by the convention. 
And uh, we had inputs there from all kinds of learned climate scientists, social scientists, behavioral scientists, oceanographers, um, people studying everything from sea level rise to the ge geological record. Um, and what you see through that process is you see a group of scientists who over time have have really got to know each other and work really well together. But it's a group of people that keeps growing and growing. Mm -hmm. Now, it's diversity is not enough because we still don't have enough of this research coming from the global south. Um, but that that platform for collaboration where somebody and particularly in this year where it didn't matter where you were, these scientists were able to collaborate, whether they were in the EU or China or Latin America, they just had to get around the time zone issue um, and to see the effectiveness with which they work together to, in this case, find commonalities in the themes across all of the three special reports that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put out over the last couple of years was pretty impressive um, to me how they organized themselves, worked together, presented together, um, gave each other respect and a turn to take the limelight and, and one thing or another. I, um, I, I, found, I found that really impressive. So I think, I think we need to do an awful lot more interdisciplinary collaboration. And I hope we model that really well in the Christmas lectures this year. That's one of the things that we want to do. But um, whilst there's room for improvement in the world, I see some, some, some good hopeful signs out there. But um, Helen and Christopher actually work in academia, so they might add add to that. Well, I think, I mean, there's a big elephant in the room when it comes to all of this, and it is that collaboration is time consuming. And I certainly ah, know lots of scientists who care very, very much about mm. all kinds of things and would love to do more. But frankly, at the moment, they, teaching is increasing in admin and load, and this is not just an academic moaning. That's you can measure that. You know the 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 things that are expected from universities. You know, engaging with all these things, talking to schools, talking to policymakers, doing all of this, and 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 the problem with this kind of collaboration. And I have been involved in in projects, perhaps not like the one Tara said, but you know these big collaborative projects. And the thing is, you have to talk for a long time before anything comes out of it that anyone is going to go, oh, that's definitely a good thing. And I think the problem there's a huge amount of will in the scientific world to do useful things but we have to accept I think that this role of academic is you know you can't do everything and it is a this there's a real problem here that's holding things back because um, it would be great. I understand there are lots of philosophical arguments to say, obviously, the same people that should be talking to the policymakers that are teaching the students that are doing the cutting edge research, right? Obviously, this should all be in one person. But those of us who are actually, you know, on the sharp end, like, there's only one of us. It's been quite a hard year. <laughs> you need yes. alone, please. And so I think, I think actually what, what, the only way this is... Good. So there's no shortage of will. Scientists in general, we have to collaborate for our... Especially in the environmental sciences, actually. That's one of the reasons I like being an ocean scientist. You have to... You're on a ship, you have to collaborate. You only get collaborators because everyone else just doesn't get anywhere. Um, that's not the problem. The problem is... How do you build a system which allows this very specific expertise? Because you do need very deep expertise to build up, but also allows the time for really you know, careful, slow collaboration, just having tea with people, right? Most academics don't have time to have tea with people. And it, yeah. and it sounds, Such you know, a good point, Helen. It's really Such difficult. a good point because, yeah, 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 because we're so prone to saying we have to collaborate, radical collaboration, but it is very, very time consuming. You're right. But isn't the, but isn't the problem, but isn't the problem we're conflating the word scientist with the word academic? And I think most mm. scientists work outside of academia. And as soon as the question is posed, scientists should do this instantly. And it's partly our bias, Helen, as we often think of academics, but most academic, most scientists are not in academia. And so actually, there's a huge body of expertise, which operates outside of higher education, which maybe by 
definition of it being their jobs to do so can collaborate to make some advances in really key areas of climate science. I think that depends on your field. I think that depends on the field quite a lot, right? I would say. It it does, but I I still think we, and I agree with you about collaboration because I'm the arch person for just flitting around between different things and working with, like we've talked about this before, mathematicians, physicists, chemists, biologists, whoever's my friends. You've met some chemists. I've never (laughs) met one of those. You're very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like you end up... um, yeah, you can end up spending a lot of time trying to make things work rather than doing things, <laughs> and, it, and it and it does and and yeah, and life at the moment is very hard for everybody. Um, but I do think we should maybe one one image I have is that academics work more closely with industry-based scientists as well, and, and yeah. I think there's a yeah. useful bridge there into some of the translation to policy and governmental like input. Because I think academics are sometimes not as well versed to do that as people in industry, having worked a bit in industry. Mm. So, but just on that point, Chris. On that point, Chris. You know, the, the, these these um, the, the you know when you said everything sort of conflates back down or whatever the word is to 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 academic, right? And actually, when you talk about scientists being all across industry, it's fascinating. What what could pull that group together? How could that group get to know itself better? Because you know, it, it's not peer reviewed journals. It's more kind of like. New, newsletters and 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 meeting and you know all the rest of it. So I'm just wondering if there's a forum or if you know how how the how the scientists of the world can get to know each other. I think there's things like conferences and obvious things like that. But I think the most I think the biggest problem I see is a lack of respect towards people who are non-academic scientists. Right. Uh, and I and I read about it and I see it and I and we talked about this Tara in London. This the, the, you know like academia can come with a whole lot of arrogance, which means that well, unless you've made it in this like classically defined, this is what a scientist is like, and you're out there in industry doing some stuff like nine to five when I'm working like evenings and weekends, you know, like that doesn't count you in. But um, uh, Tara, I don't know what you think because we we had it, we've talked yeah, about no, this a bit before. Uh... I think it's really interesting because I'm a scientist and I don't work in an academic institution. Um, and I know lots of researchers who work in universities, but they're not academics. Um, you know, so there is a there is this layering and hierarchy, which I'm just I'm just not interested in. Um, I don't really go for hierarchies very much. Um, and it, they, they, they're not always the greatest thing for the collaboration that we're seeking. But I think it's really interesting. And especially for when you think about the young people that are in the audience for the Christmas section, as in the families, to know that, you know, in no, being a scientist doesn't mean that you will wear a lab coat. I've never worn a lab coat in my life, right? And I'm an environmental <laughs> scientist. Um, but I've been really mucky and had great time in the outdoors lots and lots. And that's what drew me to environmental science. But also that if you're a scientist, you can, you can apply that as science in so many different ways. You might work in industry. You might work, as I've done for years, as a policy advisor. You might work in international negotiations. You might work creating new technology. You might work as an advisor to investment bankers. It, science can take you everywhere. And there are scientists in everything. Um, And uh, we need, I guess the collaboration needs to be, yeah, we need scientists to collaborate with each other, but we need leaders the world over in every kind of discipline to collaborate Mm. with each other. So, you know, the the best results come from diversity, as we know, whether that's diversity of disciplines or gender or race or economic status or level of education, whatever it might be. So age, yeah, age too. So like it's, it's getting that that you know, so scientists are are scientists are people, um, and scientists are people with great ideas. But when they put their heads together with other people called other things that also have great ideas, I think that's when we get to the the gold. 
So there are three of you, and the temptation here, honestly, is to uh, do an episode that is three times as long as our usual yeah, episode, that would be nice. <laughs> because um, because we would love to keep this conversation going. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Um, Paul, how do we bring this to a close? Well, I am contractually obliged and delighted to ask you all uh, to just tell our listeners. When you think about all you know, and it's a very great deal about this critical topic, are you more outraged or are you more optimistic? And one of you, like popcorn, will go first. <laughs> you see, it's, for me, it's entirely predictable. Um, I am an awful, uh, what's the word? Um, I think you want to say you're a stubborn optimist. No, I know Tara. I'm a stubborn optimist, but I want to say I'm, incu- <laughs> I'm an incurable stubborn optimist. Incurable, so, I like that. And I am an incurable stubborn optimist. Yeah, so um, I'm always optimistic, but you know, it's 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 an intergenerational thing. I think like I'm optimistic because I refuse point blank to. Um, leave a not great future to the generations that not just that come after us in some kind of distant way, but the the ones that are like here going through school and university right this second. Um, And I want them to know that I've been working hard for them and that I'm going to continue to. And I want to have made it better by the time they're, you know, my son is 10. He'll be 18. uh, He's 10 now. Yeah, he'll be 20 in 2030. He knows that those 10 years are important. He will look at back and say, all right, you, you were working up in that office, mum, in this attic quite a lot. Um, what's the story? What did you achieve? Um, he'll <laughs> want to know that because he wants to have great opportunities when, when he leaves school. So enough. But yes, I can't stop being an optimist. And I can slightly blame you, Christiana. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer, Tara. Helen, Chris. Uh, I'm an optimist as well. But I think having prepared for these lectures... And having learnt more about how the Earth works and what our positioning is presently in terms of climate change, and also having lived through 2020, not just because of COVID, but because of all the other uh, unrest, shall we say, I probably, in a normal year, I'd answer this question very differently. But I think at the moment, I'm feeling pretty outraged and upset about the state of the world, really. Um, So I think there's a lot of like, it's happening now context to my answer. But... I am struggling to find reasons to be optimistic because I think a lot of the human behaviours that are required to tackle climate change, they're common to some of the other things we need to Mm. tackle and I'm not seeing enough of those things happening, which is understanding, compassion, yeah, like a, a willingness to give up something for somebody else. I think, I think, I think that's. I think so. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I should be more positive, but I can't be. No, no. Understanding, <laughs> no, no, understanding, okay. understanding, compassion, and a willingness to give up something for others. I think it's basically <laughs> it, that's it. We either do that or it's over. Helen, the last yeah. word. So I, I don't think there's a choice except to be optimistic, and that is because outrage doesn't convince people. I don't think. Optimism changes minds. And I think the two critical things, I would phrase it slightly different, it's kind of similar to what Chris said, are kindness and integrity. And Mm. the only way you can be kind and the only way you really have integrity is if you're optimistic. And so I don't think there's a choice except to find ways to be an optimist because that's the only way you bring people with you. You need to note that down as a definition of stubborn optimism, Christiana. (laughs) That is the definition of stubborn optimism, all three of you. Thank you so much. Um, mm. Honestly, what a delight. How, um, 
how wonderful to have you all three on stage together in a few days. And the fact that uh, your audience will be so much of a bigger audience because it's virtual. So that's the, uh, that's the advantage there. And we will all be looking because we want to see those demos. Yeah, no, it's all about this. They, they blow your mind, unmissable. Thank you well, so we, much. We should perhaps say for your audience that the, um, the, the lectures will be broadcast on UK TV between Christmas and New Year. There'll be a very short gap of a week or two before they go on the internet when everyone can see them. Ah, so okay. you might have to wait a little bit longer if you are outside the UK, but then they will be on the internet forever and our colleagues will be using them to embarrass us forever. Mm -hmm. Friends, thank you so much for your pioneering thank you work, so your passion, much. your wit and wisdom. It's inspiring. Really good to talk to you. Thank you for inviting us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank and you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy holidays and happy New yeah, Year. Yeah, happy Thanks Christmas well. and thank you for having us <laughs> on. Merry Christmas Happy too. holidays. Happy Christmas. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of the podcast, and on behalf of all of us here at Global Optimism, we want to thank you for an incredible year, and thank you for listening. Before I jump into the credits, I have a small announcement. We are currently doing our annual listener survey, and we want to hear from you. Yeah, you. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast and what you want to see next year and beyond. So take a few minutes, fill it out. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. And speaking of next year, season three is coming soon. We're taking a short break off of the air and we'll be back in your feed mid-January with the third episode of our investigative series into the future of transport sponsored by Neste. And then season three begins and there'll be a new president by then too. It's going to be amazing. By the way, do you like the sleigh bells? It's like... It's like Christmas in your ears. Here, let me turn them up a little bit. Oh, too loud. Sorry. Okay. There, that's better. All right. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia-German. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. Thank you to Emily Souders for making this week's episode possible. And thank you to Caitlin Allen for suggesting the Christmas lectures for this episode. Did you know that we take suggestions? We take suggestions. Podcast at globaloptimism.com. Operators are standing by. A thank you this week to the Royal Institution. You can support the Royal Institution by becoming a member, patron, or by donating, I've got a link in the show notes to check more out about that. And of course, a huge thank you to our guests, the 2020 Christmas lecturers, Dr. Helen Sersky, Professor Chris Jackson, and Dr. Tara Shine. The Christmas lectures will be broadcast on BBC4 between Christmas and New Year's and available on YouTube in the new year. If you're listening to this right now and it's not 2020 anymore, there's a link in the show notes you can click on to watch. If you enjoyed Dr. Tara Shine on this episode, we actually had her on as a co-host for an episode earlier this year. And guess where you can check that out? Link is in the show notes. I got you. 
at Global Optimism is the social handle we use for LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Thanks. Okay. That's a wrap on season two. Congratulations. You made it through 2020. And uh, that's a reason to celebrate. Now, we are just at the beginning of the most decisive decade in history, and it couldn't be a more exciting time to be alive. We're going to be right here for the whole ride. So hit subscribe. Join us. It's going to be tremendous. Okay, we'll see you in a few weeks. Stay safe. Bye.